Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have a caller on the line. I believe it's Bruce Damer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. Good to talk to you. I think we've, we've both been overseas over the past uh, months and a bit, and we haven't had a chance to talk until now. So I'm looking forward to getting into this evening's discussion, which is with regards to the contemporary Evo grid. But before we start, I have a, a few news and notes to go through, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. So unfortunately, uh, while I was away in Australia, I found out that the company I worked for in, in Las Vegas had closed unexpectedly. And as I'm an artificial life hobbyist and biota is just a hobby of mine, I've uh, decided to spend time looking for work, um, which means that there'll be a delay in the frequency of the biota lives as they come out in the near future. I have to apologize to the community for this, but also thank the folks that have already been in contact with me with regards to, uh, you know, finding work and these kind of things. So thanks to the folks who've already gotten in contact. What I will be doing, however, is recording sporadic biota lives like the one this evening. This is being recorded early Sunday evening. Uh, so we may try at different times and uh, days uh, to see if we can fill the biota live stream. And also, uh, as Bruce had offered and as others have offered as well, I'll certainly accept um, talk audios, conference audios, lecture, these kind of things to put in the biota feed while we have a, a shortage of actual biota lives. So, Bruce, I know you're going to be doing at least four major talks in the next month with regards to the Evo grid. I'm assuming you're going to record all of those. Yes, indeed, and, and they'll be available to, to biota podcast. Terrific. And if other folks are... Uh, uh, you know, if the folks at Graytham or these kind of meetings uh, want to record the audio or if other folks want to just submit audio where they're talking about their project and asking for feedback, all these things are options with regards to uh, the Biota podcast feed. So please feel free to submit audio to me, Tom, at noblelate.com over this period, and I, I look forward to taking all submissions and we'll put them in the feed. So just before I... Um, got on this evening's show, I was checking through the iTunes-related reviews, and we got a particularly uh, hostile iTunes review on the U.S. iTunes store. Uh, folks can check it out who have access to the U.S. iTunes store, but I think the important thing through all of this is that we do have a lot of listeners, a lot of devoted listeners, and, and thanks out to the, the broader community that are listening in. But for folks who are going to discover Biota Live and the Biota Podcast series, iTunes may be one of the ways that they can find out. So please go to biota.org slash podcast and click on the iTunes link. And if you feel so inspired, please do leave a, a review about what you get out of the Biota podcasts and what they mean to you in some way to, to quell the kind of reviews that are being left currently with regards to the podcast. So, Bruce, you've been on a, a, a hectic world tour. I was looking back at the history of the Evo grid. Bruce, and if we can kind of cast our mind back to about a year ago, you were talking at Graytham, Boston. For folks who are familiar with that kind of history associated with the Evo grid, what remains the same in terms of what you were talking about at Graytham, Boston, with regards to the contemporary Evo grid project? Well, the, the initial Evo grid idea was uh, that we, we could either create some kind of common protocol where artificial life simulators 
could send objects back and forth, creatures and plants and environments. Or we could create some kind of universal underlayer. And the, the point of the EvoGrid was to kind of get things moving in artificial life. The idea being, if you develop independent A-life uh, systems, they only go so far, usually limited by the energy or the, uh, the, the funds or the time that the person who's developing individual system uh, can put into it. And then suddenly uh, the project kind of stalls out or, or alternately the complexity of the system that they have, they have developed is low, low enough or the physics is, is not rich enough that the complexity uh, gets more significant. So they reach a, a peak of complexity and then the system never generates more behavior after that. So you've got the problem of, of kind of maxing out a life, uh, what a life systems show. And so the idea of the Evo Grid was one way to, to get over that problem is to, to network them all together so that they uh, communicate and you get a richer total environment. The second was to build what I called at the time Evo Grid Deep, which is to make something that is a common, uh, a common full soup, if you might, might think of it that way. And in terms of what you've described with regards to kind of projects maxing out and also an understanding of complexity, I mean, these are, these are two issues that we've also discussed in Biota Live, one relating in some regard to the, the quality of life, but also the maintenance and continued maintenance of projects. And also on the other side, something which I've talked most recently, obviously, with Zan Gill about, the kind of philosophy that is associated with artificial life and the, the kind of meta-theories need to be strengthened and matured in such a way that we can explain these complex systems and actually utilize that in, in some kind of positive movement into the future, artificial life as being part of some kind of broader simulation science. So, I mean, in tackling these questions with the Evo grid, you've, you've described the way that the similarities that exist with regards to the project a year ago. But, I mean, just kind of going through all the places that you've been in the past couple of months, starting with Flint in particular, can you describe Flint and you, can you describe the, the feedback that they gave to you with regards to the Evo grid? Yes, and, and there was a precursor to Flint, and before I get to Flint, um, as the listeners may know, many of them may know, uh, both Tom and I were involved in Richard Gordon and Joseph Seckbach's book, uh, which has come out in the last few months, called Divine Action and Natural Selection. And we both wrote chapters for that book, and it's really a compendium of thought about you know, the dialogue between science, faith, faith and evolution. Uh, Creation. How did creation happen? Did it happen on its own? Did it happen because of a deity, a, a guiding intelligent hand, etc., etc.? It's sort of one of the great dialogues of our time. And in this book, Dick wrote, I wrote a chapter called uh, The God Detector, which you can kind of guess what that would be about, the engineer's approach to oh, those who believe that God influences every step of our lives. If God does do that, then you should be able to build a detector to detect God. But Dick's chapter uh, was about uh, Hoyle. Uh, this is the physicist Fred Hoyle. Uh, his his theory about the tornado going through a junkyard of parts and a 747 getting assembled, uh, or his 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 comment, his sort of humorous comment about it. And what Dick posed is he said, "Look, you a lifers, what you really need to be focusing on isn't 
is an origin of artificial life. You need to be not going in and creating systems that you think have lifelike properties by building some bodies and building some genotypes that make phenotypes, but by starting from scratch, where you start from basic elements, keep your hands off the system, and let an origin occur on its own. Not messing around playing intelligent designer or god, or an artificial god, as, as Douglas Adams would describe it, but letting the origin of artificial life occur. So I got fixated on this challenge that Dick made and actually wrote in my chapter saying, by the way, Dick's chapter later in the book is what I think the Evil Grid project should take on. And at about the same time, the book Protocells was coming out, and Protocells really described all the research of groups around the world that are trying to make chemical primordial cells, vesicles out of my cells, fatty molecules coming together and making these, these vesicles or vesicles, um, putting RNA into solution and seeing what it does, um, and trying to do things from chem uh, in, in chemistry, which is known, Mark Bedeau's terminology, is wet artificial life, whereas in software it's, I guess, soft artificial life. Um, there's an artificial life movement called hard artificial life, which is more akin to robotics. And so all this was going on, and I was fortunate enough in London in February on Darwin's birthday, I was doing a presentation on the Evo Grid, which was evolving toward a, a, an artificial origin of life challenge. I met Martin Hanzik uh, through uh, Rachel Armstrong, who pulled all these people together out of the A-Life 11 conference in England and pulled them into a seminar on the February the 12th at the University College London Bartlett School and met Martin Hanzig, who came from Steen Rasmussen's lab in Denmark, in southern Denmark, who had just gotten funding over several years to make protocells. And in fact, Steen was, the, I believe, the editor of the protocells book. And Martin said, why don't you come visit us? And I was like, okay, what's the cheapest possible flight I can get on, on stingy Ryanair out of Stansted? And I got myself on this strange airline and took buses, trains, and planes to southern Denmark and was able to look through microscopes at some of the things that they were seeing and looking at how difficult the bench chemistry is to try to make protocells and had a sit-down with, with Steen, certainly communicate with, with, uh, with uh, Martin and the entire group, and then had uh, luckily had 30 minutes with Steen. Now, Steen, for those of you who don't know, worked at Los Alamos, I think, for close to 20 years, was part of the original artificial life movement, and is, is a brilliant all-round guy and a really nice human being. Come back to his native Denmark, because they've got a five-year grant to set up this, this lab, Fundamental Living Technologies, I think, is the, what FLINT stands for. And he explained how hard it was to do this in chemistry from scratch. And I then explained what I thought the Evo Grid should be about. Fortunately, I had had a day before, a day of talking to the graduate students in FLINT, and one of them, and whose name escapes me, he's a French-Swiss, I believe, Jean-Pierre, explained to me literally an hour before meeting with Steen that the real challenge in this whole field is trying to figure out 
in chemistry how the chemistry ratcheted itself up, and a ratchet being a mechanism in a gear that you, you move it one little level and it, and it holds itself at that level until you move it again. The ratcheting up of complexity in the chemical soup happening enough times that you get closer and closer and closer to what is a cell or what is something that could be called alive. And he showed me his work as a graduate student in trying to to grapple with this. And this is prebiotic. This is before the first cells. So the prebiotic ratcheting up of complexity, and I realized in a sort of flash of insight that this is actually the focus of the Evo Grid Deep. It's to create a simulator, not to create a lifelike system. That may be down the road, but to create an environment where you can observe the ratcheting up of complexity through these barriers where you could pummel the system with some kind of a shock if the system had somehow frozen up and, and had consumed all of its resources, which we do see in artificial life, and, and it would be able to ratchet up and come up with more complex forms and more complex ways of dealing with its new environment. Instead of one set of wiggly little things that always seem to be the same, you get the wiggly thing generation, then you get the, the longer wiggly thing, and then you get the things that are inside of containers, and then you, you just see this complexity of pre, pre-virtual biota. Certainly, but I mean, surely the challenge here is, as you say, prebiotic. So you're not even simulating things moving to weekly things. You're simulating things moving to single cells initially. And certainly, um, for folks listening in, I had the privilege to hear a lot of Bruce's audio. In fact, I think I heard all of the recorded audio from Flint. And what struck me there was that the the Flint folk uh, had a set of, in some regard, far more complicated problems than we ever have to consider in soft artificial life because obviously we can, you know, allow for things like energy and consumption and all these kind of things on a much higher level. But the things that they are dealing with, as Bruce kind of stated initially, is really considerably more fundamental in terms of actually how do you, you know, how do you create cells, how do you create things prior to cells, the whole notion of self-assembly, I mean, all these kind of problems in kind of chemical complexity or in a chemical soup seems phenomenally difficult. And I'm interested in your your thoughts, Bruce, about whether you think what they're doing at Flint is actually, you know, orders of magnitude more complicated than the Evo grid or whether you want to move the Evo grid into being something that will, will solve these kind of problems for them. Well, here's how it unwound or wound up. The conversation, as you know, with Steen was intense. I mean, he's an intensely brilliant man and and already had thought through all of these things. So even in the 80s, he'd thought, thought through these things. So I was, he was saying, look, in, a, in, a, in, a, in chemistry, in wet, wet lab chemistry, what we are doing to try to get these protocells to form is absolutely tuning the environment. We're tuning the temperature. We're putting in the right ingredients. We're trying to think about catalysts. We're thinking about, about surfactant, sort of oily, sticky molecules. And we're acting in a way as intelligent designers, trying to get this so close that we'll actually see something form. So one could ask the question, if you're having to work so hard to do this, um, was this ever likely? You're coming up with a really narrow scope. 
So that was one direction. It, it led me to believe that, yeah, the, computationally, they're having to grope around in the darkness all the time where they're saying, we don't know what's going to form. We can barely see what's there. We have a half a million dollar microscope just to look in a very tiny portion of this solution and try to see if anything's happened. It's very hard to understand what's going on down there. They have a computationally horrendous problem. Um, they don't know the parameters. They can't witness what's going on. And what, I, what occurred to me at that point was simulation is a light in the darkness. It's a light in the darkness for what they're trying to do. And if you based your EVA grid on real molecular dynamic simulators rather than inventing something, you might help these people. And what Steen's comment was, he said, it's true. In the 80s and 90s, artificial life kind of invented its own universes. And so you could look at these properties of things coming out, but they were kind of, oh, that's in the invented universe. In the 2000s, it would be much more useful if simulations tried to, to mock or emulate real chemistry because it will help us. We need help. I mean, having Dick Gordon on the podcast and also my own reflection with regards to these kind of problems leads me to think that it's a bit like asking Isaac Newton to make an atomic bomb. I mean, we really, we are so far away from the necessary underlying theory and knowledge that to put a simulation out there, and ultimately I think we can strengthen the kind of simulation science, the metaphilosophy while we're developing things like the Evo grid. But I think the challenge currently is firstly getting the wet artificial life folk to admit actually how little they know with regards to what they're doing. And you were very successful at that uh, when you were at Flint. But also similarly, the, the background biology, the background physics, I mean, you talk about molecular physics with regards to biological structures like it's, you know, um, 2,000 years old. I mean, I think certainly talking to Dick and the, the sense that I get talking with folks like Dick is that the knowledge associated with atomic and molecular chemistry leading towards biochemistry is not even in its infancy. I mean, as you say, it is in complete darkness. Now, this is, I'm, I'm jumping ahead slightly, but I think Freeman Dyson in your travels put this out to you very, very well with regards to his ideas of, uh, you know, really what you are doing is, is simulating the origins of the universe and then constructing from there in order to get to what he described as a garbage bag or a trash bag. We'll get to that in, in some time. But I think this is exactly the problem. Just throwing simulation at uh, this kind of problem will not actually yield a meaningful solution or may not yield a meaningful solution without a good deal of kind of meta-simulation theory which doesn't exist currently. I think it's an interesting, it's kind of catch-22 in some regard because what the folks are doing at Flint is, as you say, really kind of stumbling around in the dark with, with hopes that you know they'll, they'll find what they need to find. And the issues associated with uh, atomic and molecular simulation associated with biological systems may not actually yield the answers. I mean, I think this is, I was watching Peter Newman in parallel to uh, Bruce doing his tour has been writing a particle simulator and I've been watching the development of that in parallel. And I think looking at the particle simulation in, in particular, it strikes me that it's even, it's sub-particles 
that you really need to be simulating with regards to these biological processes. I think of our, our mutual friend Lorenzo and his associated biochemist friends and the way in which they talk about uh, covalent carbon bonding and these kind of things, which is fundamentally subatomic, and the beauty and the structure that comes through these things. I mean, if you just start as a kind of atomic or even molecular particle level, you won't be able to get that kind of subtlety. So in terms of these kind of complexities, I think the, the challenge associated with the Evo grid is should we start in our current universe with our current knowledge? Should we create a whole series of additional parameters, which may be what, what Peter is doing as we're talking? Or should we start with something that's sufficiently abstract that will at least show the kind of emergence that we want to see and then map it backwards? And certainly... I didn't get the sense from your kind of conclusion at Flint. There seemed to be a question that was still open. And certainly reading your, your recent um, writings as well, it still appears to be open. In terms of the, the, your travels as being a, a meeting of a series of people and asking them, firstly telling them about the EvoGrid and then asking them where they would think the problems would occur, I mean, what was, what was the conclusion with regards to Flint in this regard? And I mean, what did someone like Freeman Dyson do to that, that whole perspective change? Well, Flint, the upshot was in a, in a basically in a couple hour period, not only did I talk to Jean-Pierre and understand this ratcheting prebiotic challenge, but uh, Harold Fellerman, who's just finishing his PhD at Flint, showed me his, uh, his simulator. I think he called it Spartacus or something some, like, like that. What that simulator did, all built open source with Python scripting, uh, it did a mesoscale biochemical simulation or, or molecular simulation where you're not modeling the individual atoms, you're modeling whole molecules. And he would run this for days and days and days, and then he built these analysis functions that would look in, look in the data or look in the matrix to look for membrane formation, virtual membrane formation. And then he would run a renderer that would just simply render a, a movie of the mesoscale particles moving around. And that struck me as, aha, that's exactly the model that I've been thinking of for the Evil Grid Deep, which is you run a massive amount of simulation, and then you, you can afford to look at a dump or a snapshot and look for patterns. And this is exactly what Fellerman was doing. And he was seeing these very simple membranes forming. So it's was a very, very beginning of the process. But then when meeting with Steen, I realized, you know, I have 30 minutes to talk to Steen, and who knows when I'd see him again. And I said, the real insight here, because he knows all this. He knows about the ratcheting complexity problem, the prebiotic problem, simulation, and then simulating and dumping and looking. And he knows it all. He's been thinking about it all. It's been something he has been trying to get to since the 80s. I said, the real magic that we can bring here is two things. One is iterative looking, and I, at the time I'm, I'm still calling this an observer function. I know that Dick has a problem with how do you define that, that the system looks at its own state and decides in some way that there's more self-assembly or self-organization going on in a certain region or instance of the simulator and decides to follow that and allow more simulation nodes to occur around that particular mix and chases down chases down uh, further self-organization in an automated fashion rather than looking at visually looking at things and deciding, which is what the, the, the artificial life community has been doing for a long time. And when I said that, 
and I, I also said to, to Steen, and we can harness the Boink network at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, which does SETI at home and gene folding at home, to harness you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of computers and petaflops of, of analysis because you can, just, you can get that if you can qualify something into their network. And I know one of the people who works on the, the network. And for a second, I saw Steen do what Malcolm Gladwell calls blink, where he blinked and he went quiet and he said, that's it. That's the answer. That's how to do this. And I knew, okay, it's done. He's, he's seen that this is worthwhile doing, and of course this has been done, but he sees a new technique that may actually work. And from that point on, he got quite excited and was saying, you're tackling one of the core things in artificial life research that I've been trying to, I've been thinking about for 20 years. It's just that I've never been able to get to it. And, and it is this issue of simulating the, the prebiotic ratcheting and showing, in principle, how it works. So that, that was, the upshot of that was Steen wanted to work, work on the, uh, in some way, advising supervising or otherwise supporting the effort. Certainly. And he also asked you to uh, chair a, a stream at Artificial Life 11 with regards to this exact problem, didn't he? Yeah, actually Artificial Life 12, which will, 12, be, held sorry. In, it will be held in Odense, the home of Hans Christian Andersen, uh, in uh, the summer of uh, 2010. So this, this is tremendous news because it allows us as a community, even Biota behind this, it allows us to create a track, a modest track about this theme and start it as a subfield. It's always been there, but it's to be officially started as a subfield within artificial life. Yes, I mean, certainly uh, Dick's feedback with regards to Mark Badeau, which I also passed on to you, this idea of uh, survival, i.e. not being eaten, eating and reproducing, being central to soft artificial life and just working a way to bridge the gap uh, from wet artificial life to soft artificial life seemed to be a theme with regards to your discussions at Flint as well. But certainly as you're phrasing the, the problem now, it really is even, it's even lower than that in terms of what they're trying to do at Flint and um, what, what your uh, aspirations are with regards to the EvoGrid. So I'm not sure, did you then, did you then return to Smart Labs in the UK having been to Flint and I, I can't Here's what happened, and I'm, it's all getting muddled in my mind, but I did two parallel things. Going to Flint, at the same time, I wanted to go back into computing history, and you know, many of the listeners know that I have this collection called the Digibarn Computer Museum, and I'm ever fascinated by the origins of, of computing, digital computing. So I went to Bletchley Park, and Bletchley Park in the United Kingdom just north of London is where the codebreakers were in World War II. And it was not a small operation. It was 10,000 people on this estate that had been purchased by the Army or, or by secret, secret folks. And in the main house, they were there, and they built all these buildings. And in Bletchley Park, they built the codebreaking machinery, including the Colossus, which was secret. It was destroyed after the war and kind of lost to history. But in the last few years, a fellow named Tony Sale, from a, a, just a few photographs and a few diagrams and, and people's memories, rebuilt the machine from scratch and using original parts. And you can see this working uh, on the open days at Bletchley Park. So 
Tony actually gave me a demo of the machine, and it, it takes in these tapes at 30 miles an hour, these paper tapes, through a photoreceptor uh, and uh, runs through this data flow algorithm through these 2,500 vacuum tubes or valves and out onto a teleprinter. And it's, it could crack codes in hours from the, the Navy Lorentz codes, I believe they were. And it led to the success of D-Day and many other things. It, the, the, the Colossus was truly a Colossus in computing. People who had worked on it went on to the United States and to Manchester and other computing projects. So it was tremendously inspiring to see this world's fastest computer in the 1940s, a special purpose computer. I then went uh, on a, the next trip was out to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And on the history side of things, I had asked for and got permission to go to the archives of the Institute. And the archivist, very kind uh, person, brought out, had assembled all the materials on the electronic computer project at the Institute that started in just after the war, and it concluded with the, the coming on of von Neumann's amazing machine in 1952 that was just the cat's whiskers of computing. It was the first machine in which you didn't have to spend a week patch cording in a custom configuration to run a 10-minute calculation. You, it, you loaded instructions, and it read its own instructions, and it ran the program, and it re referenced very fast memory on, on uh, cathode ray tubes called Williams tubes. There were 40 of them. They looked like uh, cylinders on a hot rod engine on this machine. The machine is in the Smithsonian, but it was built at the Institute and it defined uh, every computer that you are on today pretty much as a von Neumann design at its core. And I was able to go through not only the von Neumann computer project, but also one of the first large-scale scientific programs written for it by a fellow named Niels Baricelli, who decided, who, who appeared at the Institute in the spring of 1953, uh, he was a self-funded sort of biologist come computer person. Of course, there weren't computer scientists in those days. This was really the first truly functional computer ever made. And he decided he was going to create a software that would show how biological mechanisms could exist and, and how the, the process of evolution could, could occur. And the program was called the Numerical Symbioorganisms. And I didn't know anything about this until I read George Dyson's book, Darwin Among the Machines, uh, where he talks about growing up around the Institute where his father is still a professor there and finding the remnants of this old machine and then learning the history later, learning about this first artificial life program by Baricelli, which by August of 1953 had exhibited the traits that you'd see in Tierra you know, 30 years later or so, which is strings are copying themselves, there's, there's natural selection going on, there are parasites emerging. And Tom, the most amazing thing about looking through this material is when the archivist unrolled these blueprints, and it was called, you know, the Baricelli blueprints. But they're not blueprints in the way that you would normally expect, which shows schematics for designing a machine or something. These are actual camera shots of the front face of the cathode ray tubes, Williams tubes, 
where the memory, where the cache memory was stored. So there, there are lit pixels on the screen. So the memory of this machine was visible. It was lit spots on a television tube, on 40 television tubes. So what Baricelli did was somehow they took a camera and they took pictures of the CRTs while the program was running or maybe it was halted. And they could see the layout of the symbioorganisms on the fronts of these cathode ray tubes. So you're actually looking at the state of, of the software directly with your own eyes. And so they unrolled these blueprints, and I took pictures of them for my own records, of the very first artificial life uh, biologically inspired program ever written uh, right there. And I handled the um, punch card deck that, that actually loaded it into the machine and some of Baricelli's notes and his paper that was published in in the summer of 53. And it was extremely inspiring. So by the time I got the chance to uh, meet with uh, uh, Freeman, we met with Freeman several times, uh, I was pretty primed because Freeman was around in the Institute, knew all these people in those days. Before we move on from Vericelli, because I, I had the privilege of seeing some of your photos as well, and just to convey to the listeners, it is quintessentially artificial life. I mean, it's like Tierra on paper in terms of these uh, photos, and it's really very impressive. But I think the interesting question with regards to, to Baratelli's work is, what can we learn from it as contemporary artificial life simulators? What are your thoughts with regards to this, Bruce? Well, what we can learn and understand, this computer was a five-kilobyte uh, universe. Uh, despite its, its size and the heating that it put out, it was a 5K machine. And in 1953, first, first machine to run a stored program, and so one of the first program, one of the first two or three programs for it uh, is artificial life, and it generates all these properties. And then Baricelli writes uh, in, in his paper and some subsequent interviews that, of course, these things are just numbers, and they exhibit a certain complexity, but it never seems to go beyond that, and it sort of maximizes it. You know, and we need a richer environment, far, far richer, to get anything other than things that have the sense of being alive. And, and that sort of also crystallized my idea for the EvoGrid that we're, again and again we're, we're hitting these plateaus of complexity that we don't know how to break through. And if Baricelli hit the plateau within two months of running on the von Neumann Institute machine, that would certainly set the pattern for the rest of us to keep hitting these plateaus. So it's it's a multi-decade quest to, now that I think we can look back and then understand how difficult it is, but understand what the limitations have been all along. But certainly, I mean, returning to this idea of the metaphilosophy, and as we talk about Freeman Dyson in particular, I mean, this is very critical. But, I mean, what, what you see with regards to Baricelli is perhaps that Tom Ray, when he created Tierra, uh, didn't necessarily have Baricelli's work at his fingertips. He may have, who, who knows. Um, but, I mean, I think in terms of, like, a progressive intellectual movement, it's you know it, it's staggering to think that these works exist out there in an ether. I mean, this is fundamentally your your um, uh, virtual world timeline as well. 
I mean, collecting together the history of artificial life is actually part of the problem in terms of understanding how we move it forward as a progressive intellectual movement. But I think the issues with regards to complexity, again, goes back to this idea that artificial life needs to be taught in a unified fashion. There needs to be, you know, a proper academic strain that is artificial life that is very different from, you know, other other fields in academia. And from this, from this kind of maturing uh, intellectual community, obviously the development will come. I mean, what you see with regards to Baricelli through to Tom Ray's Tierra is in fact a, a complete schism intellectually. Uh, and, you know, what we're doing here in terms of historically collecting these things is actually putting them side by side where they may not have historically ever been put side by side previously. I mean, I hope we will have Tom Ray on a future bias live to discuss this very point. But I think the issue with regards to the um, how much processor you need or how much underlying technology you need or these kind of questions as the complexity of the simulations have developed in artificial life, these metrics have changed dramatically. And I think the issue is that we need an underlying a science, an underlying understanding to what these changes mean in terms of broader complexity before we can answer the kind of questions about where these, you know, where these walls actually exist. I think what's interesting with regards to the Evo grid, which we seem to continuously be returning to here, Bruce, is this idea that in one sense you can run the Evo grid and create the simulation and see what happens, but there needs to be a lot of understanding and science and study that goes into the process in parallel in order to yield answers to the questions that means that we won't have these kind of glass ceilings in the future. Into beautifully here, Freeman Dyson, who I have been referring to in previous Boat podcasts, particularly because of his background in uh, global warming, particularly with regards to simulation. And somewhat ironically, he was interviewed for the New York Times on this very issue just before you met with him at some stage in your trip. But, I mean, talk a little bit about Freeman Dyson and what insight he brought to the Evo grid. Well, interestingly enough, we had met a couple of people who knew Freeman uh, the night before, one particular gentleman, who kind of prepared me. We, we met them at the, um, the house, the, the guest house for the Institute. And he was saying, look, Freeman is a maverick. Freeman is um, he's an iconoclast. He's one of the great minds <laughs> of our time. He's also very English. And I think, Tom, you understand the references. Certainly. And if you open your mouth and you say two words and he decides to take the conversation from there, you have to let him do it. From that point on, you just follow where he goes. And he was basically giving me a sort of a worst-case scenario or maybe best-case because Freeman's already figured all this out and thought this out. And having read his Origin of Life book, you know, both editions, the mid-'80s edition and the 1998 edition, I mean, in there, I mean, this, understand this is a mathematician turned physicist who worked with Richard Feynman, unifying parts of quantum electrodynamics and, you know, stuff that I don't understand. He was also, he was also on bomber command in World War Two. I mean, he's had a profound, in terms of every aspect of, of kind of intellectual discourse, I mean, whilst he wasn't at Bletchley Park, he was dealing with the information that they were getting from Bletchley Park fundamentally as well. Uh, I did mention to him during the first meeting that I'd just come from Bletchley Park, and he perked up. <laughs> Who has come to me just come from Bletchley Park after having seen the Colossus? I mean, this sounds like something 60 years ago. Um, 
you know, of course, he, he may never have seen Colossus. Very few people did. The need to know. But, yeah, Freeman in the 50s and into the 60s, you know, because he's at the Institute for Advanced Study, and if, there are people who don't know about this institute. It's an amazing place. It was established uh, through the wealth of a New Jersey department store uh, couple that owned a chain that had sold themselves out to one of the other major stores, maybe Macy's, in September 1929, a month before the stock market crash. Um, took the wealth and wanted to do something significant for the state of New Jersey and, and was talked into establishing this institute by an impressive gentleman. And they built it next to Princeton, but it was an institute meant for pure study, no laboratory work, no students, no degree granting. Uh, and there was initial discussion of it doing doctoral degrees and they just never have done it. And it's a place where you go and you can have license to do crazy things, to do things that don't have practical application. You're away from the hustle and bustle of the cities. You have, if you're a professor, and there are only a couple dozen of them, you have a guaranteed salary for life. The institute pays your mortgage on your house. And it's, you, know, you have great meals and staff that serve your every need, and that's for, for uh, professors. You also have visitors that come, members and visitors. And I can't quite figure out what the difference Nobody seems to know what the difference is. Um, members and visitors that come and work with you from outside, and many of them are young people. String theory is a major uh, element at the Institute. There's string theorists at T all the time in a clump up in the corner of T. And there's tea. There's tea at 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day. Um, very English type of tradition of that your father would have... Would have been. Very much so, yeah. As a young child, I was uh, raised at tea, so I, I know right. it well. So... <laughs> So here you are, and here's Freeman. Uh, of course he's able, because he's at the Institute, because he's a professor, he's able to switch to biology at one point and say, I'm going to study the origins of life. So he came up with the, what he called the double origins of life theory, which is that life was you know, one bit and then another bit, you know, a cell and a replicator, and then somehow they got together, that life had to have started kind of at multiple points of complex objects that then later are linked up. It couldn't have started as one machine. So uh, Freeman does this, and throughout his career he's able to take on multiple. He takes on nuclear disarmament, and he's part of that. He writes for the New York Review of Books. He writes books. Uh, an amazing gentleman. So here we are sitting in his office. So we, we meet him at tea. Uh, uh, Pete Hutt, who's my host and my entree, he's a professor at the Institute, he's an astrophysicist, who has his own department there, takes us in to tea to find Freeman. We have a, an appointment with him at four. And he's starting to rush toward the door because he realizes he's late, and Pete says, here they are. And, oh, good, I don't have to hurry. I said, save you having to run, rush off. So he leads Galen and myself to his office, and we strike up which is, I was very relieved for Galen to be there because we strike up conversation. She's such a good conversationalist um, about his passion for nuclear disarmament, about his passion for astronomy and what is he working on. And we talk for about 20 minutes about that. And then I find out that his wife, Inna, is from East Germany. So I talk about my life in Prague in the 90s and tell him some really good stories. And I thought, okay, he's probably a story person because we know that he goes to the play readings every month that are held institute play readings. And so that really 
kind of warmed the whole thing up very well. And then he turns to me and says, so, you know, this is the moment of that one fears. So, <laughs> why have you come to see me? <laughs> uh, so instead of being in, in you know, the deer in the headlights and stark raving terror, I just kind of casually launch into all of the collected ideas of the past several weeks um, that I've been traveling around, I've been collecting these ideas, and in fact, I had started a PhD in 1985 at the University of Southern California, which was the precursor idea to what I'm working on now, and I'm, I'm getting back to it after 24 years. And I thought he might be able to relate to that as he had, I guess, started, never had gotten his PhD at Cornell, but they admitted him as a professor. But I told him a bit of my history, and then I launched into the evil grid in its sort of more most crisp form than I could get it at that time, which was about this complexity and rationing up and uh, prebiotic simulation. And after, I can't quite remember, I didn't record this conversation because I felt it was maybe a little bit intrusive. We were able to record the second meeting because he had told us the New York Times, the New York Times reporter had forgotten to bring his recorder. So I said, oh, well, can I record from this point on? So after about 15, 20 minutes of me babbling on, uh, and having him completely uh, staring unblinking at me, and I'm thinking he's either thinking I'm a complete nutter trying to figure out how to get us out of the office as quickly as possible, uh, or something's going on. And I stopped in some, some crescendo thought of some kind, and he said, oh, delightful. I thought, oh, my goodness. I said, delightful. Is that the same as mad because a British academic at UCL had declared me mad? And then he little cocked his head a bit, and he said, mad is not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I thought, there you are. That's the English, right? That is the English. Mad means, what an outlandish idea. I wish I could work on it and not risk my entire career, but you're lucky to uh, take a stab at such a, a, you know, an interesting thing, but you're mad anyway. Uh, there's a bit of envy in mad, and there's a bit of, criticism, but a bit of uh, wish I could be working on this and I've got this dull job. So that's what I got from Freeman's comment. And then um, he stopped, and, and I think I've, it may be age, but it probably is the way he works. He stopped, and of course, I was luckily smart enough, and maybe through Galen's guidance, to let him think. And he would stop and think and ask a question, and I would answer it, and he would ask another question, and I would answer it. And then he said, well, he, he actually got up, and he said, can you add me to your email list, please? I thought, okay, that's it. He's, I was going to ask him if he would advise the project. He just said he wants to be able to see materials from this. Um, I said, we've got some early, early demos on the computer and some funny movies. Uh, and Galen said, we're thinking of coming back next week, and he reached over for his address book and said, oh, wonderful, let me put you in the schedule. And we thought, oh, my goodness, he wants to see us again. We're not just another couple with the funny colored hair, uh, more in Galen's terms. So he put us in for Thursday of the next week, and he said, oh, I have to see you then because I'm leaving for Kazakhstan on Saturday. 
you know, to watch my daughter, you know, maybe go into space. And I said, you know, in order to get in touch with you, uh, to George, I emailed, I emailed Esther, and she gave me George's email address, and she said, hello, because we've known her for years. And I said, would you say hello to Charles, and this is Charles Simonyi, who is actually the, was the space uh, tourist preparing. Uh, Esther was the backup crew in case uh, Charles got the sniffles that morning, she would climb on the rocket. Uh, she was the backup crew. And um, George had been in touch with me and said, basically, come by and see you. Don't, don't, you know, don't do any elaborate sort of setup or anything. Um, and they were all turning out going to Russia, go to, going to Kazakhstan to watch this launch, as they all did. And it turns out that Charles is the head trustee for the Institute for Advanced Study. So I think the fact that I I knew both of his of his two of his six children uh, enough on speaking terms, and I also have Charles uh, Simonia has been involved in the Digibarn Alto History Project, and, and he also sponsored uh, Dawkins for many years at Oxford. And if you looked out Freeman's office window in on the Bloomberg Hall and you look straight across, there's the Charles Simony, Shimony Building uh, Mathematics Hall. So definitely, <laughs> and you look the other way and there's Pete Hutt across in Building D. Um, and then the T on the, on the right. I mean, it's quite a, uh, so the Institute for Advanced Study, the the current idea is that somehow, and I can't really divulge how because it's in a proposal that I'll Certainly. be working with uh, Pete and other people at the Institute somehow on the evil grid. I think you've missed a critical part of the story, and this is certainly something that I found fascinating. The insight with regards to the multiple origins of life that Freeman Dyson offers is fundamentally that life comes out of funk. It comes out of you know, grotty, grimy environments that are allowed to kind of heat up and cool and do all these kind of things. But it's fundamentally, what, is this term garbage bag or trash bag? Yeah, his, his term from the book is dirty trash, or trash bags full of dirty water and gunk, um, in, in his metaphor in the double origins of life. And I think certainly listening to just the six minutes of audio that you did record with him, he was returning to this theme with regards to the Evo grid, that really what you were doing in the Evo grid was kind of pre-even the, the dirty, grotty trash bag. This was something where you were actually trying to work out ways of kind of cobbling the funk together in order to make a, something that could yield simulated life. I mean, was that your understanding as well, talking to Freeman? Yes, and in fact... It mainly came across, we showed him the Evil Grid movie, which is very fanciful, and perhaps my mistake is that it started in and I didn't turn up the volume. He didn't hear, you know, he may be somewhat hard of hearing. Um, you know, I certainly will be if I'm 85 if I'm still around. But he may not have, have understood that the, the movie we were showing was very fanciful and very simplified. And the movie, of course, the Evil Grid, the movie, the, the first version, which is public now, um, shows really simple sort of particles moving around and then these trash bags emerging that suddenly have more complex behavior and it's, it's e extremely cartoony. And so his critique of the movie was, oh, it's just, it's not real. I mean, it's not, and, and of course I said, of course it's not real. It's a, it's a, it's a notional cartoony representation of, of this thing. Uh, I did then show him the Asteroid Eaters version of the Evil Grid movie, which is basically the 
the Dyson's trees concept. And for those listeners who don't know about Dyson's trees, it's something Freeman wrote a couple of decades ago about that the habitable surfaces in the solar system may be in the Oort clouds and the asteroid belts and the cometary halos. And if you could evolve or engineer things that could live on their surfaces and eat up that material, you'd end up basically vivifying the solar system. You'd end up creating uh, life appropriate to the solar system, not just to the surface of the Earth in these very, very limited temperature and pressure regimes and liquid. And so I said, I'm going to show you another version of this that, that, that is kind of aimed at the Dyson tree concept, and then told them about my 10 years of work with NASA on simulating missions and recent work on asteroid, and how I felt that actually lassoing and bringing asteroids into Earth orbit uh, is kind of could be a Dyson's disk. If you wanted to look for civilizations, they would maybe have Earth-like planets with great disks of material that they were mining and producing their own biota to live on, uh, because they realized they need biota as a stepping stone. And he seemed to be all quite interested in that. And I was very, very honored that he you know, watched the Asteroid Eaters variant. And that, that will be public pretty soon. Uh, Ryan is working on the final versions. So that, in the end, he wanted to meet. That, that was the second meeting, showing visuals. And I showed some of Peter's early simulation work. And a little bit more about Peter's work. What we decided to do is go sequentially through existing open source chemical slash molecular slash particle dynamic simulator packages that already have years and years of work in them and see if we can take one as the basis and modify it to do an EvoGrade prototype. And so Peter went through Espresso from the Max Planck Institute, another one, and now he's looking at uh, Chromax, which is he seems to be quite impressed by. So what we're doing is actually installing these platforms, and we're pumping them in with particles and properties and, and relationships, and then running them and then looking at rendered outputs of, of small areas. And it saves a lot of work than having to start from the first line of code, as you could imagine, Tom, to, to start with these platforms. And the platforms are already built by people who want to be able to simulate chemistry. So Anyway, that's, um, then we had lunch with Freeman and talked about pigs. So moving into what Peter Newman is doing currently, I mean, I've been uh, following this as well, and certainly the, the films that are coming out seem to give an almost kind of Big Bang-like start with regards to then, you know, the, the uh, particle interactions, um, you know, become intricate and, and these kind of things are observable, certainly in the graphics that are produced. But in terms of the ideas of the observer function and how this will work, I mean, is the plan, I mean, certainly the, the most recent one that you referenced, the name has just escaped me. I think it has an X at the end of it. It deals with relatively small uh, kind of cubes of particles. Is the plan to uh, put each one of these cubes on a, a different processor or possibly through the Boink network and see what comes out of these various cubes and will those cubes, each of them have their own observer function to kind of tick off when it gets to the point of, you know, necessary interestingness in order to do massive simulation at that particular area. I mean, is this, is this the way you're seeing the EvoGrid currently, Bruce? 
You know, it's it's still a huge open question in the air, and I've been I'm, I'm for the next several months I'm going to be on a quest seeking advice. Uh, we met with Paul Pangaro in New York City, who knows about some of the pitfalls in AI. He's just a tremendous, uh, knowledgeable person, and I'm actually asking everyone who will listen about what they would do because I think yes, you could visualize it and. The, proposal that I've, I've sent you today that is the next two-page crisp summary of this thing shows Peter's concept of, of a tree, um, a tree of, of simulations uh, where you're following, you're, you're, you're looking at emergent complexity and how on earth do you define what is interesting emergent self-organized complexity in the simulation. I mean, that's another huge area on its own. Um, and then you're deciding to start more simulation nodes and, and variants. Vary the, you could vary the physics slightly. Now here's, here's the, other, the, the other chart that was sent in the document for you, the alpha, beta, and gamma chart. What I realized, and this is coming back to something you said earlier, Tom, do you try to be very faithful to chemistry and run the simulation and see if something happens? Or do you decide you're going to do abstract universes, just like a life normally has been, but with a lot more parameters, a lot more rich physics, and a lot more parameters, and vary the physics? So in the in the in the in the chemistry simulation, you're not allowed to vary the laws of physics in the simulation. You're only allowed to vary things like heat and inputs and energy sources and sinks and whatever, uh, and how many particles are there and what kinds of particles. But you may wait a long time to see the complexity. If you were able to create artificial universes with wildly differing properties, you might be able to hunt down emergent ratcheting complexity faster. And so I have this conflict in my head of, you know, you have to choose one or the other. And then it occurred to me, just do both. Just, just make both as the goal. Because you can run one saying, we're trying to be a light in the darkness for the chemists. You run the other one saying, we're wild-haired complexity theorists that are trying to find complexity, uh, increasing complexity at all costs, and we're willing to invent weird universes to do it. And that's a very institute type of way of approaching things. There would be a third variant, which I call gamma, which allows users to muck around. And it would be the interactive version where you know, here's your chemical simulation. Why don't you try throwing in, you know, take your virtual beaker and pour in these surfactants or throw in a complete protocell and see if it breaks up or not. Uh, or in the wild universe version of gamma, you have, let's try this universe and let's throw in this large Borg-like structure and see if, you know, it gets broken down into bits that then get self-organized. You know, throw in the sugar cube. And so all of, all of this, it's become a grid of possible evil grids, a grid of evil grids. And the first two aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, certainly the, the point that I wanted to make through our correspondence is that you can have a real-world simulation that is just a series of fixed variables, and then you can do the possible-world simulation based on the real-world simulation, but with, as you said, variables that are a fix now being relatively fluid in kind of, you know, how many dimensions you want to do it. What interested me with regards to the idea of the user tinkering 
version of the Evo Grid, because I mean this is a theme that's gone back really to the origins of the Evo Grid, was something that you said I think to the most recent fellow that you you spoke to was the idea that uh, this could be something that was almost a museum piece that people could enter a you know a computer museum or a biology museum or something like that and and tinker away in their um, virtual petri dish and then throw it back into the Evo grid. And certainly my own kind of sense of regards to these kind of projects is that you give that to the internet as well and then you get the really obsessive people that will spend hours, days, months, you know, years tinkering away and doing that kind of interaction and certainly you'll find something interesting from that as well. But in in your travels and certainly through our correspondence, there have been two what I feel are almost competing themes and I've described this back to you as the idea on one sense of building the Evo grid, which is what you talk about doing in some regard and certainly what Peter Newman is kind of tinkering with currently, and also the idea of summoning the Evo grid, which is a theme that has also been going through in terms of your meeting people, in terms of your sowing the seed of this idea of the Evo grid with the view that what will come out of it will also be a community that will understand and develop the Evo grid. And certainly my own feeling with regards to building the Evo grid is that the challenges both financially, logistically, and also with regards to your personal time will probably be astronomical in terms of you taking a, not necessarily a managerial role, but certainly an overarching role in terms of the kind of mad scientist that actually builds the Evo grid. Whereas what you've been doing so far has really been fundamentally sowing the seeds in a sufficient number of minds that you are almost summoning the Evo grid out of this kind of collective intelligence. Do you want to talk about these two notions and, and the way that you see them being resolved? Yes, and I, I want to thank you, Tom, for so eloquently and brilliantly uh, stating this, because it, when you wrote Summoning the Evo Grid, it really started to clarify my thinking about my role. Because in truth, uh, I don't, if you look at if you look at the young graduate students that are coming to the institute or other institutes, you know, they already, they're specialists, but they're incredibly informed. They have had incredible uh, mentoring, and they've, had, they've written papers, and they, they have incredible deep knowledge in certain specialties, knowledge that I will never have. Um, I'm very much a generalist. I believe that I, I came to the right spot at the right time and put together the idea in a unique way and I'm approaching some of the right people to further develop the idea, yourself included, and if I'm summoning it, which I think I, I really did in the in the mid nineties summoning the Avatar by creating the contact consortium, creating the conferences, writing the book and doing a thousand demos, a thousand public talks on avatars. I helped to summon the avatar in the virtual world, the social virtual world into existence. Um, sometimes the summoner doesn't really get credit, but occasionally someone comes up and said, you know, you did a talk in 1997 and I established my whole career based on what you showed this early virtual world. And that's pretty satisfying. The fellow who tracked you down at Burning Man as well, I think... I don't remember whether you attended the most recent Burning Man or whether it was one before, but I remember seeing a photo of a fellow proudly clutching a copy of your 1997 uh, Peach Pit Avatars book, and I could tell that he was a devoted fan that knew that you were going to Burning Man and had to track you down at that one event. 
So I think there are people out there certainly that do do appreciate your work with regards to avatars, Bruce. Thank you. And uh, in fact, there's just a documentary film crew here. Um, I was talking to them about the history and the future of the medium. But so last night I was sort of pacing the floors here at the farm, saying, "What is my role? What is my role?" And I'm really coming down more to it being the summoner or the Johnny Appleseed, but who also had has has an approach and has come up with what may be a key innovation, uh, the, a conceiver, co-conceiver of an idea, but really in a leadership role, conceiving some of the fundamental bits. And then as others come up with, with challenges or questions or, or other fundamental bits, I'm synthesizing that in. So it really is a collective work. And what I've told people, I said, look, when a paper is published uh, based on on this work, it will have 300 names on it. It will be just like one of those cyclotron uh, papers because it has, it has to acknowledge at least a couple of hundred people that will have contributed intellectually. So it, it does, and you're absolutely right, this is an industrial scale enterprise. It's like the Human Genome Project or SETI at Home. And it's industrial scale and it will need an industrial scale budget. And at some point, it will have to be justifiable to an investors, perhaps initially to private philanthropy, uh, and then the outcomes of, of what is really fundamental science. It's fundamental technology and science, and it's fundamental biology and fun, fundamental mathematics. That, that will produce a whole generation of, of really valuable tools that you could use to fight cancer, and uh, one of the people advising the project is a cancer researcher, and she says, if you can do what you're saying with all of these particles and this, these interactions, you could, you could fabricate the model of a cell with millions of millions or hundreds of millions of parts, and we could fabricate even a small portion of a cell, get it close to some kind of fidelity with a real cell, and we could actually start studying cancer from the inside out. Is that is something that you could definitely sell uh, to the biomedical community. So, in, in a short answer to a long, uh, a long answer to a short question, you, 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 Tom, are definitely helping me to to decide what my role is, and it may be the summoning role. So, the final hard question for the evening, and I did I did run this one past you earlier, so it isn't completely out of the blue. I've followed, obviously, the, the history of the Evo grid progressively. I mean, obviously, from doing the early uh, Biota interviews with you leading up to Biota Live and then the early Biota Lives relating to the Evo grid. And certainly, I think, um, and, you know, Dick Gordon and I regularly uh, compete with regards to this title, but in terms of listening to and viewing all the possible Evo grid-related stuff, I've, I'm trying to keep up as much as possible. One of the interesting narratives that I've been following through, and obviously it's a mildly selfish narrative, is with regards to the role of biota in the Evo grid. And certainly when you start introducing folks like Freeman Dyson and also people like Pete Hutton, obviously, uh, Steen, and in fact everyone at Flint, these are people who fundamentally can also contribute to the biota community as well as the Evo grid discussion. And perhaps I've been negligent with regards to replenishing your biota CD stock so you weren't able to hand out biota CDs as, as freely as you had previously in the Evo grid development. But my interest is how do you see 
firstly the broader biota community, but also biota as a movement interacting with the EvoGrid development. Do you see the EvoGrid development really being the new narrative associated with biota, or do you see them being two distinctly different things, and how do you see it all fitting together in the future? Well, I think a lot of this is going to, as I gear up, and, and many of your listeners may not know that I'm attempting in the middle of all of this to to obtain my Ph.D. degree in three to four years um, from this work, from some kind of outcome, because I started it in the 80s, and there wasn't computing power. No one understood what I was talking about. And I've really sort of as a life thing, I'm trying to actually get that final degree, the, the terminal degree, which is a great name for it. Um, before I'm in too far into my 50s, but I'll be 47. I'm 47 now. Um, not the oldest PhD uh, student in the world at this point. Uh, so that's all part of this, and I, that's what will keep me writing to deadline, whatever it is I write. But also this upcoming ALIFE 12 track uh, is going to draw quite a bit of interest, and I think it could be that, that Biota and Biota Live and the Biota podcast could become a really good home for the characters, the personalities, the extant issues, um, and the points of view that lead up to that ALIFE 12 uh, track, uh, which would be then also recorded to be rebroadcast on, on Biota, and that that might be a, a great mission, because in a sense one could also say that the track is co-sponsored by Biota, thereby getting us edging us back toward our past as, as a conference uh, hosting organization, but we would actually be hosting a conference, a mini-conference within ALIFE, which is a wonderful merger of, of two parallel tracks, one well-known, the ALIFE conference, and one less known, the bio, Digital Biota conferences. Certainly, certainly. But in terms of folks such as, I mean, Adam Aramenko, obviously, people like Justin Lyon have contributed, Gerald, myself, uh, Dave Kerr. I mean, there have been a wide variety of contributors to the early EvoGrid discussion with the view that this was going to be uh, a biota project, fundamentally, that the biota community would come together and contribute into this thing that was the EvoGrid. Now, this became uh, the EvoGrid broad in some regard, which really is the responsibility of the community to continue with. But in terms of the new EvoGrid, in terms of Bruce Damer, as he will talk in front of the contact conference and also um, adult bots and various other things in the next couple of months, how is the biota community part of the current EvoGrid development? And do you see them merging? Do you see biota becoming the EvoGrid development? Do you see them running in parallel as just an instrument of discourse into the EvoGrid? How do you see the two things holding together? The main, the main way I see it holding together is that the people like Adam and Gerald, yourself, who have built uh, ALI systems and observed them over, in, the, in your case, you know, well over a decade, uh, I think you have a fundamental understanding uh, that ordinary mortals don't have about the challenges of emergent complexity and the ratcheting up thereof. Um, you have a fundamental because you've been watching things. And in a sense, the subconscious has been absorbing things, and you've been experimenting for a long time. So I would say that 
every single person who's been on this podcast and has contributed to the evolution of this idea is a co-collaborator. We have another caller on the line. I believe it's Dick Gordon. Hello. It is Dick Gordon. Hello. Dick, do you have any questions for Bruce, or do you have any any comments that you'd like to put in the podcast well, with regards to the Evo grid? Yeah, I got, uh, I've been thinking through this ratcheting problem and uh, while you guys were talking, and it seems to me that the one can make a correlation. Uh, the, the correlation would go the following way. What ratcheting is, is effectively a system changing levels of physics. And uh, I gave that analogy in an email I sent you guys about the interactions of molecules can lead to surface tension, but surface tension in some sense doesn't exist. It's an abstraction that we make. Nevertheless, it's commonly accepted in physics uh, that you can use surface tension as a physical concept in many situations without having to go down to the molecular level to simulate it. So the idea I'd like to put forth is that ratcheting is equivalent to a system using different levels of physics. And the way to handle that in general nowadays is what's called a multi-scale physical simulation. Okay? So we have a three-way correlation, ratcheting, levels of physics, and multi-scale physical simulations. Now, in a sense... Modern physics can't handle these higher-level physics concepts like surface tension in the sense that there's sort of an independence of the physics at the two levels, and you have to do extremely complicated simulations in order to find correlations between the levels. Okay? So in a strange way, physics itself is in the same problem, has the same problem of dealing with these different levels that we deal with in living organisms, okay? So what I'd like to suggest is that, okay, let's accept this situation uh, in terms of the philosophy of physics and just say, okay, what's the observer function that Bruce is postulating? What the observer function needs to do is recognize when different levels of physics need to be invoked, and that's its primary function, and then switch to a different level simulation. Okay? So that's that's what I, I think there's a in other words, there's a way of rationalizing this without invoking uh, an intelligent design approach where the observer is something standing off to the side guiding the evolution. All it's doing is switching levels of physics. Mm-hmm. And how would you how would you um, advise Bruce to approach this, Dick, with the view that Bruce is currently well, looking at uh, well, you know, particle simulation? Yeah, well, let's take something terribly simple, and that is uh, in a zero-gravity situation, uh, suppose you were doing a simulation of molecules that had the possibility of forming droplets of liquid. So what your observer function would do is look around for droplets. Now, once it found them, it could then group the molecules that it finds are, are roughly in the form of droplets and now invoke a higher level physics simulation for the whole group where it's replaced by a, uh, a sphere that is simula- or simulated with surface tension. And then, for example, if two of them coalesce, we have formulas for the coalescence of two spheres 
of a fluid of known viscosity that don't require simulating the motion of the individual molecules. Okay. But aren't you telling, aren't, through the observer function, aren't you kind of leading the pathway towards what you're trying to look for yes, in some regard? Yes, you are in a sense. And in the sense that we haven't solved this problem in physics in general, what I'm saying is instead of trying to solve everything at once, accept this problem of physics not able to handle these multiple levels in a uh, philosophically nice way. Just accept that and say, okay, we'll write an observer function whose only function is to recognize when a different level of physics should be applied to, uh, to basically speed the simulation. Now, the problem, of course, is that you know, as the levels increase, then we have to understand the physics at the different levels. Okay, but you know, I think that's that's. Uh, let's get a couple of steps of this done, and then worry about the more esoteric ones. Uh, I've been. But in terms of the multi-universe problem, Dick, where you may where you may actually have certain universes which get to droplets faster, do you then say that those universes are the better universes for what you're going no, to be simulating? No, no, no. I, I'm saying just let's stick with our universe and just use the physical parameters for our universe. I mean, you know, there's no reason to assume other than non-life went to life within our universe with its physics as we understand it. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the basic assumption. Uh, Bruce put it beautifully in his uh, article in the Creationist book uh, that there's an assumption which a life makes, and that is that the and it's a basic assumption, and that is that it is correct that uh, uh, that you can get uh, life from non-life. As long as we make that assumption and put in realistic physics of the universe we're in, uh, I don't think we can go wrong. We could go wrong in that it, be, it might not be adequate, but I don't think we can go wrong in that basic assumption that most people make. But in previous biotal lives, you've actually made claims with regards to our understanding of the physics and the adequacy of our understanding of the physics associated with this problem. Well, yes, at some point. I mean, when we hit the level of consciousness, I don't think we know what in the hell to do. I would agree. What physics, what is the physics of consciousness? But we're, Bruce is starting way below the cellular level, so let's not worry about that yet. No, no, I mean, I'm even talking at the cellular level, or perhaps I misunderstood the way that you, you know, framed the problem previously. I mean, my understanding from talking to you previously is even at the cellular level, as you take it from, you know, basic atomic physics, there are still so many gaps in our knowledge with regards to actually assembling things to the cellular level. Yes, this is correct, but so what? We, if we only invoke real physics and see what, what emerges that matches some real physics, we're okay. I mean, you know, at the, at the level Bruce is dealing with, for example, uh, one might switch from molecular dynamics to uh, Navier-Stokes equations for fluid flow. Okay? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, those are well accepted, and, you know, there's a huge literature on these higher, this higher-level physics, even though the transition between them is not always smooth. So is a faster 
method just to take your collection of observer functions and work out how to actually find a, a kind of you know, fastest possible movement through the selection of observer functions that you present. I mean, obviously, that's the right. challenge. To there's a, in other words, uh, there's a tree of physics, so to speak. Okay? Uh, we can think of it, for example, the one level is the relationship between atoms and molecules, as an example. Another level might between the re be the relationship between molecules and a fluid. Uh, you know, we'd have to think through carefully. Once you've got a fluid, you can talk about, you know, when do you have sharp enough boundaries so that a surface tension should be invoked? Okay, this is the kind of thing which I'm saying. So as a simulation runs, the observer function is looking around for clusters of lower-level stuff that can be lumped together into higher-order physics. But that's all it does. It's It's just saying... We can approximate what's going on at the molecular level by this higher level physics, and we're going to switch to that higher level physics now. It will speed the simulation, simplify it, and give us things to handle in terms of understanding what's going on at these higher levels. We don't have to look at it all as a chaos of molecules in which we're trying to see a pattern. So and the, the observer function, I think the observer function is the wrong word because it ties in with a mental function. It's really, it's a, a, I think since Bruce just coined that a couple of days ago, I think the thing is to get rid of it and change it to something less subjective. It's a function which recognizes the appropriate level of physics to be using. I mean, it could be a net. And I completely agree. And in fact, even as long as a couple of years ago, as I was sketching out nerves and trying to figure out things that just occurred to me, oh, as soon as a, as soon as a vesicle forms, you, you're at a meta level now. You have a yes, exactly. So why not recognize that? And you recognize that and you switch to your, your, your vesicle. Yeah, and once you have a vesicle, you can have flow through it. Okay? So you recognize that flow can occur and the thing can conf confine a fluid and therefore pressure can occur. Pressure is an example of a concept which is an abstraction from lower-level stuff, but it's nevertheless a concept that has a very rich physics going back to uh, at least the uh, thermodynamics of the early 1800s. Okay? So, you know, there's all sorts of... The whole development of thermodynamics is a higher-level physics. The ratcheting up is... I'm ratcheting to different physics models. That's right. Fundamentally, that's what's going on, and that's what allows you to ratchet starting with this origin of life at a molecular level. The ratcheting of, is ratcheting to different levels of physics, and I think if you... And, and this was brought up, uh, the gentleman I forgot to mention, uh, Arnie Levine, uh, who if you look him up, he's an eminent figure in, in, in genetics, and he's he's the man who brought... Uh, biology to the Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, Freeman wanted it for 50 years, and Arnie brought it in. And of course, Freeman says, "And I and I've already retired. You know, and this has finally happened." <laughs> but okay. but here's the thing, uh, Arnie. The night before, we were at the Marcon house, and we met. Arnie was there, and we met him, and and he, he was an extremely uh, erudite man. He he spoke with us for three hours. He gave me the advice on, on talking with Freeman. But mm -hmm. he also it came up with exactly what you're saying, which is the physics changes at each level. 
Yes. That's the fundamental thing. That's the, yes. And, okay. And so it it's stuck in my head, and I mentioned that also to 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 Freeman that Arnie had said this, and of course you you have said this a long time before. Um, but one of the things that Jean Pierre at the Flint Group pointed out, he was saying, yes, of course, there's higher order structures emerge, and then you have to you have a different whole different universe, but the lower order stuff is still going on. But you don't have a different universe. You see, the physicists accept that these models are all valid. The higher level models are approximations to the lower level, but they still deal with it as physics. They don't call that metaphysics. Right, but the the thing is, what John Pierre is pointing out is, he said you, you have to understand it, that there's a feedback going on between the emergent structure and and the the ratcheted pre-ratcheted stuff is still going on. It's still going on in there, and even the the the, the most fundamental atomic elements are still going on there. So you have to actually kind of run all the simulators at once. Well, yes and yes and no. You see, once you've got suppose we have surface tension of a droplet. Now, having identified the particles that are in that droplet, we now switch to moving them in a different way. Okay, because we switch to, let's say, let's say we've got a drop that's vibrating, or so it's changing shape. Okay, you can now there. Once you've recognized you've got a drop, and that's the function of what you've been calling observer function, then uh, uh, then what you do is you let its dynamics drive the lower level. In other words. If the droplet changes shape because of the surface tension effect, let's say you've got gravity so it flattens or something like that, then you move the particles within to correspond to that shape rather than doing both simulations simultaneously. Right, one is now driving the other. The higher level now drives the lower level. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry to cut you both off, but unfortunately we've run out of time and as Gerald and I were burnt Previously, with regards to um, Blog Talk Radio cutting the audio, I think it's probably best that we conclude the discussion currently. And I'd like to thank you both, obviously Bruce, for coming and giving an update and and Dick for instigating more conversation into the future. The next Biota Live is open. It uh, it may be sometime in the near future. It may be slightly longer. It may be conference audio. Uh, But I'd like to thank folks for listening in and thank Bruce and Dick for participating. Thank you.